Just kidding. Definitely not going to be doing a skit this week. It's been, you know, when somebody says you had a case of the Mondays, but it lasts kind of the whole week. That was kind of what my week was like. So been kind of a rough one, kind of a weird one. Uh, but actually digging back into this interview and finishing the edit really helped me kind of center myself and, and put whatever, you know, small, stupid troubles I was having and feeling in perspective. So here's the second half of the episode with uh, Sabrina Ryan Helton and Angel Tamio from The Bail Project. If you missed the last episode, please go back and watch that first. This is a continuation of that. So listen to them in sequence is what I'm saying. Uh, that way I don't have to do two intros. But also, <laughs> we really sort of laid a profound, powerful base for the conversation that continues here in a second with that first interview. So I want to just dive in. But as I was digging back in and inter- editing the interview, I was really struck by a couple points that Sabrina and Angel make, and I wanted to just sort of call them out. I'm going to call one out at the beginning and one out at the end as sort of like if there's a takeaway, if there's a thesis statement from what we're talking about in this episode, it's these two things. So the first one is Sabrina talking about how our system is literally built on the expectation that people aren't going to use the full constitutional rights they have. The only way our system in Spokane specifically, and mostly throughout the rest of the nation as well, can incarcerate, arrest, hold as many people as it holds, is that 90% of people take plea bargains. They are tricked or they are coerced by the system to not use the totality of the rights they have as American citizens, and I would say humans, but in this context, as American citizens, and therefore don't get their day in court, don't fully use the rights that they are given in the, you know, the, the constitution is, has its problems. This is one spot I got pretty right. You shouldn't be locked up by the state until the state proves you've done something worthy of being locked up. Yeah. I realize I'm yelling. I'm sorry. So here's Sabrina briefly talking about that. Right now we don't have the staffing and the representation. We don't have enough judges. We don't have enough public defenders. We don't have enough prosecutors. We don't have enough, you know, investigators going out and collecting, um, evidence for the trials that we have right like if we if we did have enough people wouldn't be sitting in jail sometimes for two or three years waiting for their trial and so it it wouldn't take very many people demanding their due process right for the system to have to stop and undergo a huge change. So yeah, you'll get that full quote in context once we get there, but just be thinking about that. This, that's kind of the, the theme of this episode. Like if we're not going to put the money into actually engaging with people's due process rights and doing it in a way that makes sense, why are we arresting so many people? And until we stop arresting so many people, what can we do as a society to act on the system in such a way that forces it to make change. So that's one of the reasons I think bail disruption is such an important piece of any sort of radical change that we hope to affect on the world. The system that we have has been working for 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years, whatever. It's gotten even worse and more carceral. We incarcerate more people than we ever have. And the system's not going to change unless some pressure is applied in such a way that forces that change. So yeah, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Uh... (laughs) Just shut the hell up, Baumgart, and let these brilliant people talk. Angel Tamio, Sabrina Ryan Helton of The Bail Project, right after this. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 11. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Part 2. Sabrina, so you were, you had never been, this was your first quote unquote offense. You'd never been arrested before or whatever. And then you were looking down the barrel of a life sentence. Like I can only imagine how just terrifying that would be for you. And if you hadn't had family who had been involved in the system before and you had nowhere to look like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have any of that kind of support. And you know, the, it it might sound whatever, like I'm not judging at all the, the 
advice that I got from the other women who were being held pretrial because the the reality is like the ones that told me like it doesn't matter whether you shot him or not it doesn't matter whether um you were defending yourself like if they want you to go to prison you're going to go to prison yeah what they were really saying is the the system doesn't care about you at all right absolutely and and in fact my public defender told me that the reason that I would wind up being convicted if we went to trial is because there's no self-defense law in the state of Washington. And, and that's not a lie. Actually, there isn't a self-defense quote unquote law in the state of Washington, but what he didn't tell me, and I didn't know because I'd never been involved with the criminal legal system before is that, there's a self-defense jury instruction. If we went all the way through trial, the judge could tell the jury that they could consider that I was acting in self-defense. Right. And so like, yeah, it's just for me, if I would have gotten bailed out, it would have made all of the difference because I wouldn't have felt that pressure. I would have been able to reach out to more people you know, besides yeah, the, yeah. the people who had already been beaten to death by the system yeah, and had no faith in it, you know, um, for good reason. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that was so fascinating about this was like sort of taking, so there's these individual cases where what you're trying to do is <laughs> just help give people a little bit of hope mm-hmm. that they can navigate the system without immediately taking a plea deal, without immediately putting something on their record. Oh, so another thing, Angel, you've said is that you had a heart, but let's, let's just pause for a second. Mm -hmm. You said that since you've been out now, you have an amazing job. You're like a person who gets quoted in the newspaper as an expert (laughs) quite a bit. Like Mm -hmm. that's how I found out about you guys. Uh, You have, you said you had a good credit and you know, a good reputation in the community. You still have a hard time finding housing. Yes. You, you, because you have that box Mm -hmm. checked that you're a felon, you literally months ago had a hard time finding a place to live. I I did. I needed to move out of this house. So I put in notice and I was good with my landlord and I began the search and I found another place, put in the application and, and, you know, at review, just looking at the hard copy of things, they were like, yeah, no, this looks good. And, you know, if you want to secure this place with a deposit, let's do that. And so I gave them the check for the deposit and you had the money for the deposit too. Yeah. And, and I was anticipating moving in in a couple of weeks. Well, a week later, I get this call and they're kind of hemming and hawing. Well, you know, after more consideration, we see that, you know, you're actually not a good fit for this community. And I was just like, what, why? (laughs) And they, and then they brought up, you know, this felony conviction. And I was just like, oh, wow. You know, and then it was like dead heat trying to find. And then two more applications after that same thing. And I, I just sat there thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm going to be homeless with my kids. And it was that same old feeling again, you know, that's awful. And it was awful. And just by grace, somebody else in the community that knows me and knows my work, they are also hard at work in this community as well, working on racial equity. And they heard my plight and were like, hey, we rent houses. You can rent from us. But and I know that that's not the case for other people, though. Right. No. Be- because you have, you kind of have found a way to occupy a special place yes. in our society and you've built up that, that, um, sort of safety net or, you know, like a, a network of people. Yeah. You're in a place that a lot of folks who'd had similar situations as you wouldn't be able to have. No. And that's true. You know, well, and it's one of the things that's so just gutting. And I think I can't remember which one of you said this, but you said something to the effect of like one of the, the fundamental premises of America is that you're supposed to be able to reinvent yourself. Right. Right. You're supposed to be able to like transcend whatever your circumstances are, uh, you know, whether you're, you know, and, and well, we don't allow immigrants to come over on boats anymore. But, you know, if you're coming in through <laughs> Ellis Island, right, like the classic American story, yeah. what the, the story is that you're supposed to be able to improve your your situation and what's really happening here and this is so brutal is that you did not have any further contact with the criminal legal system no you just had a mark on your record that is a stain that until fundamental things about our society change is never gonna go away right 
you know, I, I liken it to the kindling, the kindling to this whole raging fire that's in our face right now in our society. These are the things that have built the way for people not to be able to get higher education, for people not to be able to find and secure adequate housing or jobs or vote. Right. You know, now that you've done these things, you don't count anymore. Um, And we know that the folks who are most affected by that are people of color, black people, brown people and poor people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just thinking now, you know, when we go in and we evaluate folks for bail, we'll go visit them and we'll talk to them. And you should see like the light come on when we we kind of relate even a little bit of our own stories. They're like, what? You know, I go in and I go, man, I've been in. I know it sucks in here. I've been in here so many times. And they're like, you've been in here. I'm like, yeah, I've been in here. And so there's that little glimmer of hope. You know what I mean? And so then when we're able to actually secure freedom for somebody and they come and visit our office and they're like, man, I've never been bailed out. Nobody's ever bailed. I've never been able to be bailed out. And they get motivated and and they have a connection with us. And then throughout the whole process, you know, they're not alone. We're savvy to, you know, what next steps should be. If I were you, this is what I would do. You know, when I was in this situation, this is what I did that worked, you know, so I know for me, like the flames in my face defer me from seeing any, any other kind of light. And so when I, when I'm, when I'm able to kind of like give that to somebody else, you know, that it, it matters. You know, so I think it was you, Angel, that said one of the things like the feeling of being in jail, feeling hopeless, feeling unworthy, not having anybody you could talk to, not feeling like you'd fit in anywhere. Those were the same feelings that led you to start using in the first place. So it right. seems like you guys and, and by just providing a little bit of hope for people in, in one way, you're maybe not even just a bail disruptor. You're also maybe an, an addiction disruptor as well. One of the things that, yeah, I think you both said it in different ways was you just needed somebody to come along and be like, hey, I'll help you out. You can you have a place with me. You like I can I can help steer you through this. And that just gave me chills when I was hearing you both relate that sort of a story. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Like, it's not just bailing people out of jail, connecting them to services. It's really like helping reconnect them with their own humanity, it seems like. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I I love how I love how Sabrina says, you know, we meet these folks and and they're they're whole people. You know, um, somewhere along the line, somebody told them that you're broken or or they've convinced themselves through through, you know, standards and expectations that they feel like that they're not meeting somehow um, that that they're not, that they're broken, that they're irreparable. But, um, you know, I I you know, and again, I'm just going to go back to my own experience. I think about, you know, being out there and subject to this criminal legal system and you know, being submerged up past my eyeballs that my vision was really short. You know, my connections were really like short and and there was no strength in that. And so, you know, we are able to connect to people in a different way where, you know, maybe the first meeting we kind of are able to draw them out a little bit so that they can at least see us, you know, they can see you know, our experience, they can see, you know, the hope that, that we do our, our, our best to try to impart on people. And, you know, it might be just one thing at a time, you know, it's kind of common practice for us when we do pull, you know, when we do, I always want to say, pull them from this sinking boat. (laughs) When we secure freedom, we secure freedom for them and they sit in our office and, and it's, it's Thursday afternoon and they've been in jail for several days. And sometimes we bail people out who've been in jail for several months and, and, and we're, we're like, okay, so, you know, and they come out and they have all these plans. Thank you so much. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And we're like, okay, that sounds great. Let's go ahead and let's write that down. And I was like, but, you know, why don't you just take the day to kind of get settled where you're going to go? And then things really become apparent what our needs are. So, you know, instead of the next day, I'm going to get into treatment. Maybe the next day we go get an ID. You know, maybe yeah, the right. next day we um, get our our medical stuff turned back on, you know, and so um, it's, it strikes me that that's like a feeling of and I, I think about just the times that I've been in trouble. I've never been justice involved, so I don't want to say that I am, but like my immediate like 
when you have a sense of guilt or something, you're yeah. like, Oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to solve this for, I got to go make sure I apologize to this person, whatever. It's like, there, there's like a, a, a sense that you need to like restore people, even faith in your basic humanity. I don't know. And I've just maybe walk around with a lot more guilt than most people do. But, um, it's like, I, I, as you're telling me that story, that's how it feels to me. It's like people yeah. are like, Oh my God, I just, I got to prove that I'm not worthless. It's like, no, you're, you're not worthless. Cause you're a person. You're, you yeah, have a certain dude. intrinsic yes, humanity. That, that's it. Uh, so take a deep breath, mm-hmm. you know, get some rest, go get your ID. Let's talk about treatment like that, that in itself, I could see being such a powerful thing. Just being like, we're good. You're good. Like, let's just, let's create a plan. I could see that being very, very helpful for people. And it is, you know, because I, you know, and I'll go back to my own experience yet again, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I, I came out this last, the last time I was, you know, in jail and, and I felt like I was so far behind. I was so, I lost so much and, um, and it overwhelmed me. I was just like, you know, I have to do all, I do X amount of things and I have to get it in an X amount of time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of have been in this place where I put me here and I can't reach out for help because nobody knows how to do this. Um, nobody cares. You know, I felt like I deserved kind of the punishment of this being overwhelmed, you know, and, and, and yeah, I, wow. I kind of sense that when people, people get out, like, like I understand, you know, and, and they, they kind of get it twisted, you know, that, that they have to prove something to us or something that they weren't, right. wor- they aren't worthy of being bailed out. And I'm just like, wow, you know, that's, yeah. that's not the case at all. You know, we all deserve a fighting chance and this is what it is. Sabrina, you said something really beautiful where you're, you're sort of your as the two of you, and I don't know if this is the bail project or if it's just y'all two, but you said that one of what, in terms of what constitutes a win for you guys, sometimes it's not even taking a, taking you up on a bunch of services. It's just, even if people don't take you up on some of the help, if someone just thinks to call and say, I'm in an unsafe situation, I need a ride home. That's a win. Because you've built a little bit of community with that person that they, they know that they can trust you rather than just trying to rely on whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually Angel had said that um, okay. previously, but it is it is something that we share. Um, you know, I know Angel talked a little bit um, at the beginning about how, you know, both of us were kind of moving in these um, criminal justice and social work circles, but we didn't really know each other. Um, yeah. but you know, in the last year and a half, it's become really apparent that like, th- this is a friendship that was supposed to be, we are mm-hmm. really, <laughs> we're really in sync, um, about a lot of things. And, and mm-hmm. that is our, that is our philosophy. Like, a a success to me is that this person doesn't have to spend the night in jail. Yeah. or the next month in jail or, and, you know, disrupt their whole life again. A right. success to me is because I know that the opposite of addiction and antisocial behavior and, you know, criminal type behavior is not abstinence from those behaviors. It's connection. It's yeah. con- connection, investment, mm-hmm. personal, like, connection to your community and to other human beings. And so when people recognize that and are like almost all of my clients, I have added on social media and I, I communicate with a lot of them and that way, even after their, even after their case is closed, because they're part of my community. And I, I want them to know that they're a valuable part of our community in a, in a society where we guilt and shame and punish and throw people away for making mistakes. How, how is a person supposed to feel like, or believe that their community even cares about them? And so we are or that they often, can ever be or that they can ever be whole again or they can ever right. be a part of it yeah we don't we don't view our clients as like people who need help quote unquote like yeah. we we view our clients as 
you know, people who just need some information maybe, and they might just right. need somebody to care about them. Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, and, and that's easy to do, right? Because they're <laughs> humans. We, I care yeah. about humans. Yeah. And, um, and I got lots of information, man. I had to teach myself about Google when I got out of prison, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I did it, you know, and I, I know how to, to help make sure that my clients know that they're empowered to live the life that they dream of living and not the one that someone else says that they have to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can we talk just brief? and I know we're going long. So if you guys need to leave, that's um, okay. But the, um, it's right. So one, one of the things that I wanted to just chat about is if, if this system as it is of just like, locking up as many people as possible, you know, a third more people than the jail can handle and letting them marinate until they take a plea deal where if, you know, if the statistics in in the Bronx are the same as Spokane and there's no reason to think they aren't because they're both 75% or 70% pretrial, you know, populations. If more people were able to get bailed, if, if those 70% of the jail were able to get bailed out and they all or a good percentage of them fought their case, the system that created that problem of just locking people up knee jerk would grind to a halt, right? Like you just could not do Absolutely. that many trials. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> like how many, how many, how many more trials do you think we would have to do before the Spokane County prosecutor's office would just grind to a halt? <laughs> That's like a rhetorical question, but I, it's, it's not that many, right? It's like they're, oh, no. they're counting, they're counting on a 90%. Is it in Spokane? Is it also a 90% uh, plea bargain rate? Uh, I don't know that we have the data on that, but okay. um, but it's high. It's high. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. very high. Right now, we don't have the staffing and the representation. We don't have enough judges. We don't have enough public defenders. We don't have enough prosecutors. We don't have enough, you know, investigators going out and collecting um, evidence for the trials that we have. Like if right. we if we did have enough, people wouldn't be sitting in jail sometimes for two or three years waiting for their trial. And so it, it wouldn't take very many people demanding their due process right. for the system to have to stop and undergo a huge change. I mean, right now, just a few months ago, toward the end of the month, every month, people were not being assigned public defenders because their caseloads were above the, you know, the mandated amount. Mm -hmm. And so the, the public defender's office requested, um, you know, additional budgeting to hire a couple of more public defenders and, and were not only denied, but had their budget cut. Oh my God. You know, (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was sitting in one of the last Justice Task Force Committee meetings and um, sitting next to Tom Krasminski when when that information came down and you could just. Sorry, who's Tom Krasminski? Sorry. He's the director of the public defenders. Okay, cool. And he he shared that we asked for more public defenders because we we need them so badly. And not only were we denied, but where we have to let let some of our public defenders go and and just you know looking at his face it was just you know and then being so close to these clients too who i mean depend on these public defenders you know um i i have so much more respect now for public defenders you know being a bail disruptor that you know oftentimes they're I mean, they're the only ones sometimes that people can call when they're in jail. They have been able to um, let family know things that are going on. These public defenders let us know if people have like health, you know, things going on in their health that, you know, please can they can you consider them for your project? And 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 I just remember seeing Tom's face and how 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 utterly defeated and then angry, like, you know, what the hell, you know? Well, let's think about this for a second, because what it means is you, you mentioned due process, due process, due yeah. process is a constitutionally protected right, right? So everybody who's walking around talking about the second amendment and wearing an assault rifle on their back should perk up at this part of the conversation <laughs> yes. because due process is 
right up there. It's like, I don't know. It's, is it, what is it? The f- something? I'll look up whatever amendment <laughs> it is. It's one of the original freaking amendments. It's right there with the first amendment. It's right there with the second amendment. And what we're really doing in this scenario is we're denying people due process. We're denying them. They're making the process so difficult. They're understaffing the public defender's office. The public defender is who you go to when you don't have money to hire another lawyer. Yes. So we're making it so hard. That's one of the reasons public defenders are like, yeah, you should probably just take a plea because I'm my, I only have time to meet with you twice. Like right. I've got a hundred other clients, right? It is an unconstitutional system in my mind. What the way we have structured this to get like to technically still provide just the, the, the veneer of due process, but it's not. You can't mm-hmm. get due process if you're a certain class of in, a certain kind of individual. It is qualitatively much, much harder to get the representation that you're constitutionally guaranteed, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I know you didn't ask about this. I don't know if you're going to, but I'm just going to throw it out there because of it. (laughs) Go off, Queen. (laughs) Thank you. Um, You know, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about defund the police, Mm-hmm. This yeah. this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about make all the police go away so that nobody has to be accountable for what's going on. We're talking right. about take some of that money away from the policing and the charging and the, you know, um, violence that is policing and instead put it toward public defenders so that people can get their due process toward social services that would more effectively and uh, actually like scientifically proven to reduce recidivism or crime or and heal our communities put it into housing put it into more treatment facilities put it into you know more jobs put it into civic education so that people can feel Uh connected and invested in their communities it's like we've built it's like we've built a hot like so let's treat the criminal legal system like a hospital system we have nothing but emergency rooms Mm-hmm. We don't have yep. any specialists. No. We don't have any we don't have any like urgent care facilities. All we have are the guys with the blink the flashing lights and those are the the people that are like when there's an absolute crisis. Right. That's the only point that this begins because of the way we've starved all those other programs and all those other sort yeah. of avenues of getting help in favor of creating a militarized police force. It is, you know, as much as um, people have it in their minds that, you know, more police equals decriminalization, that's that's not the case. You know, transformation um, to our communities really starts in that pretrial change. De-incarcerating jails, you know, I, I, I always throw the hashtag invest in the divested, you know. Invest in the divested, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we, we need to you know, cultivate healthier communities. And, you know, when we connect folks to services, we really rely on the most reliable um, resources out there. We have some wonderful partners who um, along the way, you know, they might have provided, you know, some low barrier treatment where, you know, in, in, in them doing the work too, they've realized we need to kind of widen our services and being able to do that on their own is really wonderful. But I think that, you know, I think about, immediately the things that that are needed like if we could have more you know triaging people to go to treatment like sobering units like uh right you know um you know we have some great mental health emergency type services but you know we could use more i just am really on that tip that it really takes the whole community to, of course. To do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Here's where maybe we could end here. Maybe we, maybe it continues a little bit. One of the things that's so fascinating in in this time, I feel like i I keep ref, I keep reflecting on how absolutely incredible just the collision of coronavirus and also the, <laughs> the protests that have happened in the in the wake of George Floyd's death. Mm-hmm. One of this one of the assumptions about why we need to lock so many people up is that people are dangerous. And in order to keep our community safe, we have to lock up all these criminals. We're going to lock them up 
Because if if we just if we just the the you know put them in the revolving door and they come back out, they're just going to keep doing crime. They're going to keep doing crime. They're going to keep our you know society unsafe. It's going to be bad. Uh, crime's going to go up. We you guys wrote a letter uh, <laughs> at the outset of COVID saying we need to. You're not going to be able to properly socially distance in an overcrowded jail. We need to release a bunch of these um, the the people who are being held at the jail just so that they don't get coronavirus and we don't have this massive public of uh, thousand people. Again, a thousand people a day are sitting in the jail, a jail that was built for 750. We don't have a thousand people with coronavirus ending up at Sacred Heart and Deaconess. Mm-hmm. And they actually did. They let people out, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it was super encouraging. You know, we, we drafted this letter um, and sent it to, you know, the people who actually had the power to do something about this. And um, I, I, ha- I remember having a conversation with um, a couple of the city council members just after the letter came out and they were like, this is amazing. You know, I really hope that they quote unquote, listen. And I said, well, listen, I'm telling you, like you guys have the authority right now, right. city council mm-hmm. to issue a, a mandate, an exception, a guidance or whatever, and release sure. everybody being held on city misdemeanor cases right now. Like this isn't right. something you have to wait for someone else to do. You right. have the power. And within two days, 48 people were released from the jail on city charges. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a little bit longer, but ultimately we've, we've been able to bring down just through this community, the criminal legal system, and um, have been able to keep our jail population down to under 600 people between five and 600 people, which is the lowest it's been since the eighties. That's incredible. And and our crime rate has barely gone up. I mean, you, you kind of just ruined the punchline for me, but (laughs) I want to just, so it was again, a thousand people it's down and, and stayed down at 600. And immediately what happened with, within a week, Sheriff Knezovich did a press conference saying that they're seeing a massive spike in, I think, robbery, that crime rates had gone up, and he was creating a task force. He was creating a task force to deal with all of the crime that was happening. And literally, he didn't, I don't think he used, he might, may or may not have used the actual words revolving door, but that was the idea. It's like all of these serial criminals are back out on the streets because of coronavirus. And these social... These social justice warriors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And it's the social justice warriors who are, are enabling this criminal activity because they demanded we let people out of jail. But this is this has been like six months or six weeks. I've checked at least the city comp stat scores. I'll probably check the county ones before we do. They don't the county doesn't seem to keep as good at records as a city. So yeah, punchline, Sabrina. <laughs> crime rates have not gone up at all. Not even a little bit. Right. I mean, he's quoting this, uh, you know, 300% increase in robberies. And what that means really is that there was one this time last year and there were three this time this year. Right. Or, you know, like all the shops are closed down. So people that might have just been like, you know, stealing, you know, like shoplifting basically had gone to steal a different kind of thing. So what he said was, and and there's like, I don't know, there's like theft, burglary, robbery. There's different classifications that are basically stealing things for people. They've like shift that he, it was like he, it was a robbery task force because robbery had gone up, but theft had actually gone down. So the aggregate crime was the same. Right. Actually (laughs) had been property crime and violent crime. Both saw a downturn overall um, during the same period of time. And, and it's, it, it was just fear mongering. I mean, really, like it was Johnny B bad, you know, I, I actually, (laughs) I hashtagged I am Johnny B. Bad because yep. <laughs> if you're if you're looking on paper, like I am not a per, I'm one of the people that he would have been targeting, you know, right. and, yep. and of look at where I am now. And he clearly somebody asked him, a journalist asked him, like, how do you know that the people that are committing these crimes now are the ones who were released because of COVID? And he said 
we know the ones who have criminal long criminal histories and do this sort of stuff all the time and and they're on our radar and i'm like yeah. did he literally just say that he is going to be targeting formerly incarcerated or or formerly convicted people even though there is no evidence that they are the ones that are doing any of this. Yeah, that's exactly right. what he said. He said, we know that when Johnny B. Bad mm. is in jail, crime goes down. And when we know that <laughs> Johnny B. Bad is out of jail, crime goes up. So much, of, so many of us sat there looking, watching him say all of this and just disgusted. Like, yeah. you know, this is a way, another way for. I mean, it's already hard enough. It's already hard enough for me, Angel, as a felon to get a place to live, to get a job, to go to school, to go into the school, to to go with my children on their field trips. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I, and, but to have to be able to feel like, um, I'm also being targeted by, by, you know, those who are sworn to protect and serve me in the city is really like, it gets heavy, man. Well, and I mean, that's really what a lot of this these protests are about, right? The fact that yep. certain people are targeted by law enforcement because whether real or perceived, there's there's a target on their back and it's awful. The other thing that I'm, all day. I'm good. <laughs> but here's the other thing. We know the man, uh, Sheriff Knezovich, loves a press conference. He loves to call a press conference. So if Johnny B. Bad actually had been out there doing, you know, got got released and been doing crimes, he would have called another press conference. He would have said, hey, my robbery task force is working, guys. Look at all the Johnny B. Bads uh, that are out there. There's, it has been radio silence. Radio silence. Yeah. So that's why I've, I haven't been keeping up on the county stats. But the city yeah. stats are, are clearly, are literally unequivocal. They are clearly not going anywhere. And if and if if they had gone somewhere in the county, Ozzy would have called another press conference. Well, and I think I think that it's also really contextually important to remember that this is the same guy who not only invited but is fiercely supporting a training that teaches our officers to kill without remorse. Yeah, totally. And, and in an instant that that's actually taking away their ability to discern in the moment what the appropriate action is. Right. It's taking a, a, a ju- what is should be a it's a completely flawed judicial process, but it's turning it into an extrajudicial system of killing. Yes. And, you know, I, like the reality for me, the, the thing that just like doesn't work for me is you know he's talking about well this training is to to help our officers be less traumatized when they do have to you know use deadly force and and honestly like the appropriate reaction to officers being traumatized (laughs) is not to teach them not to feel not to care about the community they're protecting. It's to get them the help that they need to recover from that trauma. I would say, and tell me if I'm crazy, that trauma is an appropriate response to killing someone. Absolutely. If you you have to kill someone, I mean, think about you, Sabrina, if that gun would have gone off and you had that person had died even completely in self-defense, would you have gotten been traumatized by that? I would hope so if you're a person who feels. Yeah, I was traumatized and the gun didn't even go off. Like I exactly. I remember sitting in the back of the police car thinking in my state of shock that, wow, I I guess I actually could kill somebody. I guess I really could pull the trigger. Like, wow, because I did pull the trigger and the gun didn't go off, you know, so. So like that to me was life changing. It made me question and reevaluate who I was as as a person. Yeah. Because I had never ever imagined that I was the kind of person, quote unquote, who could kill another human being. Right. You know, and and that is a totally appropriate reaction. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. completely. But you know, we we kind of see the the vision or the the remedies being so way out and I you know I want to I want to put it all on our good sheriff that you know 
things get misconstrued, but you know, it's, he has support, you know what I mean? Like to, to bring in a, you know, uh, this warrior, um, uh, methodology, this, right. this mindset boot camp um, to treat the mental health of law enforcement is such a way out concept. You know what I mean? Or to buy $300,000 worth of thermal imaging equipment um, in light of COVID-19 is such a way out concept. You know what I mean? Cutting in for clarity's sake, they're talking about using coronavirus disaster relief money to buy the sheriff a $300,000 thermal imaging camera for his helicopter. Like, is that going to be used for contact tracing? Okay, back to it. Yes. Right. And it, yeah. it, it's like, is this going to like fly over the top and be able to detect if a person has coronavirus to check no. their temperature oh my god yeah, like right. he didn't even try to connect these things to coronavirus he literally said that it was in response to the protesting right and yeah. like what does that have to do with coronavirus response it has nothing to do with it nothing and it's just completely disingenuous of our government to continue causing harm in our community by expanding our jail and expanding our capacity to punish people with money that is intended to heal our community absolutely so we haven't even talked about the prosecutor and we honestly don't have time. So <laughs> we just, here's, what, how, here's how I want to wrap this up. In a just system, all, asp- all parts of the government would be working together to find the best outcome for the best person, not to in- overly incarcerate them or just lock them up and throw away the key, but to get them healed, get them brought back into society. And maybe that takes a tough love. And maybe in some cases it does require being locked up for a little while. I'm not, I'm not sort of forestalling that at all, but there would be everybody along the line working in concert starting well before anybody gets, has a run in with a police officer. But even then, you know, diversionary programs, drug court, we have drug court, we have community court, they work, they're really effective, but they're basically so underfunded. They're, they're a little more than like pilot projects. So we don't have that sort of perfect system right now. We have a sheriff who likes to, who wants to build a bigger jail. We have a prosecutor who loves throwing people in jail and, and actually run and was elected on throwing as many people in jail as possible. Mm-hmm. So we don't have those pieces that we need. Like in, like, uh, was it San Francisco and Philadelphia? We have decar- they have decarceral prosecutors who are actively mm-hmm. trying to incarcerate fewer people. Like that's an amazing thing. We're a long way away from in Spokane. So it strikes me, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you guys since the very beginning of range, one of the reasons having known a little bit about the bail project, I was so stoked that we had one in Spokane was that the pointy end of this spear for disrupting the entire system feels like this, the cash bail thing, because if the system is going to continue to just grind people up, throw them in the marinator and just try to extract as many years of their life as possible in these scenarios and then extract as much funding from the public as possible and then we've got the sheriff in place that we have we have the prosecutor that we have we have some well-meaning city council people but the mayor isn't receptive to these ideas the only thing we can do is force the system to grind to a halt you know shove as many as much sort of debris in the gears as possible to get the machine to grind to a halt right I mean, is there another way you guys see? Education and involvement, civic engagement. One of the big things that we talk to the people that we encounter, whether it's through our work or through our advocacy, is helping people get registered to vote. encouraging people to use their voices to change the system. You know, we have actually one of the better reenfranchisement things here in in Washington as soon as you're no longer under the custody of the state or whatever as soon as you're done with that right. you can vote again and you don't have to do anything special you can just register to vote even with a even with a felony that's awesome think about what a powerful voting block that is if right. we can just get people re-engaged and and 
the whole purpose of our carceral system is to disenfranchise people and take yep. away their power, take away right. their voices. Yep. And so we must come together. We and people are afraid. People are afraid yeah. to get re-enfranchised. You know, they don't um, they don't understand if they can. They don't see the value in it because the system didn't do anything for them. Why should they say anything, you know? Well, and clearly, yeah. Why would you want to have any more engagement with the system than you do? You know, why would you go out of your way to engage with a system that's kicked you in the nuts as your whole life or whatever? Yeah, and it's, you know, you're powerless and hopeless when you're sitting in prison and, you know, the system, the world, your community is telling you that you don't matter. You don't count. And oh. and if you get told that and shown that for long enough, you're going to start to believe it. Right. All right. So this is going to somewhat by happenstance, but I think kind of perfectly, this is going to be our Independence Day episode of Range. Okay. You're one, Independence Day. So what maybe we just end with like, both of you, like, how do you think we get free in your minds with the, the system you see in front of you? How do we get free? You know, the question before that you asked about how do we get these systems to grind to a halt? Like we've been able to halt processes for our clients who need to go to treatment, who need to go to the hospital. Their families are trying desperately to put families back together. You know, even if it is just to stave it off for just a little while until they can find wellness, until they can find their feet underneath them. Uh, I really practice like the old ways that I was raised with, um, you know, that it really is about a community coming together. And those of us in this community who are sick and hurting, those are the ones that we need to put right in the middle, you know, yeah. and have everybody else kind of be that support for them. That's so important. But I really do believe that our job as bail disruptors with the bail project, you know, this really is a decolonizing effort to secure freedom. We say at the bail project that freedom should be free. Yeah. And, you know, freedom means so much more after you're not locked up anymore. You know, freedom really is finding yourself. Freedom really is finding well-being. Freedom really is being connected. Freedom really is being able to stand up and fight on your own and with somebody else, you know. And I, I would just kind of echo what Angel said and then also like specific action items for the people who are listening. Yes, um, please. Yes. Right, right now is support the voices of those who are most impacted. We cannot expect the same systems that created this problem. We cannot trust that those systems are what's going to lead us out of this problem. There's a, a saying out there that was coined by Glenn Martin, of uh, formerly of Just Leadership USA, a formerly incarcerated man. He's also the founder of the Close Rikers movement. And what he says is, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but farthest mm. from the power and the resources. And so anything, whether it's pre-trial justice or racial equity or healing your community, it doesn't have to cost anything to get toward freedom. You just have to listen. Listen to the voices of those most impacted and let them lead the way. Wow. Support your local organizations that are doing this good work and invest. We need to invest in our community. Yeah. And and in one another. Well, that's awesome. That's a great oh, way to... Oh. I've got one. <laughs> I've got one more. Support support the movement to abolish the 13th Amendment or rewrite the 13th Amendment that still allows for slavery if you've been convicted of a crime. There's a nationwide movement to abolish or rewrite the 13th Amendment. And if you're not familiar with what that is, um, there's an amazing movie called 13th that everyone should watch. It's free on Netflix. That's Ava DuVernay, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, except when it didn't. Yeah. And it still stands today that if a person has been convicted of a crime, they can be enslaved. And mm -hmm. that is not anything that our nation should allow. Right. Absolutely not. As we've seen multiple times in the media and and 
through other sources over the last number of years, how many innocent people have been enslaved because of someone else's negligence or, you know, intentional misconduct. Those are really, I think I learned about the 13th amendment from a killer Mike song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Um, and definitely, I think among those community organizations that need support, I can't, I, I literally, and I'm not just saying this cause I'm talking to you guys right now. I can't think of a better one to support than the Spokane, uh, office of the bail project, because I, I really do think that that's the, the, the tip of the spear to, again, not just sort of aff- affecting some sort of system wide, you know, slowing of the works, but also just the way you guys talk about the way you interact with your clients. It's the first step and really maybe the only step that's happening in Spokane right now of giving people back their personhood, their their sense that you said so beautifully, Sabrina, that they are complete people and not broken people and not merely their criminal record. They're more than that. And um, it's just incredible. So please support the the bail project. Anything else you guys want to, you guys want to shout out? Sign the petition. Uh, it's on uh, Facebook. It's on social media. You can Google it to stop killology from coming to Spokane yep. and killology. I'll, uh, I'll put all that stuff. If you guys send me a list of uh, things that you're work or you're thinking about, uh, I'll put those in the show notes too. So just go look for them in the show notes, folks. Awesome. Some awesome. Sabrina and Angel approved uh, civic action you can take today. Yeah. And if you if people are interested in uh, more information, we have a very active um, Bail Project Spokane Facebook page um, awesome. that that we share a lot of these uh, community involvement opportunities on. Cool. Okay, so we'll uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So. Yep. Great. Uh, Sabrina and Angel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having us, Luke. Stay up, Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) Wanted to say thanks to those two again so much. Uh, Their enthusiasm and energy was infectious, even when, as you could tell at the end there, I started becoming a sad little boy, very tired from two hours of interviewing. But yeah, their passion allowed me to push on as well. Got something cool coming up next week. But for now, I just wanted to leave you with, we, we started off the episode with a quote from Sabrina talking about how even a small number of people demanding their due process would grind the system to a halt. I'm going to leave with Angel reminding us why it's necessary to heal rather than incarcerate as a first step. It really is about a community coming together. And those of us in this community who are sick and hurting, those are the ones that we need to put right in the middle, you know, and have everybody else kind of be that support for them. That's so important. It really, really is. All right. Have a good week, everyone. Those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but farthest from the power and the resources.